This is the Vincast, Australia's premier wine audio podcast. Uh, if you're a regular listener of this podcast uh, and you might be interested in seeing some of the uh, content that I create, then why not come to the Intrepid Wino YouTube channel uh, and, and watch some of my videos. Uh, regularly, I have the pleasure of opening up Australian wines. Uh, sometimes they might come from my own cellar, but uh, quite often uh, they are very generously donated by wine producers who might be interested in seeing what I think. And if you'd like to, uh, to, to see what I think of your wine, please do get in contact with me because I'd be more than happy to. Uh, I also do other videos. Uh, more recently, I've actually posted a couple of videos of uh, my intrepid winemaking experience in 2016, um, which I playfully called the Sangiovese Project because I bought a ton of Sangiovese grapes from the Heathgate region and um, and I chronicled my uh, my winemaking journey. So uh, if you'd be interested, please head to that Intrepid Winer YouTube channel, hit that subscribe button, why not watch some videos, um, like some, and please do comment because of course as always i love hearing from you um, but please enjoy this week's episode of the vincast Episode 89 of the Vincast, I chat with Australian wine writer Jane Faulkner. She shares her background, her insights, uh, and particularly talks about uh, alternative varieties in Australia and Italian wine. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and um, I've got my uh, first wine writer guest for a while, someone I've actually been trying to get onto the podcast pretty much as soon as I started it, um, Jane Faulkner, uh, who is um, one of Australia's favourite wine writers uh, with particular uh, expertise in Italian wines and Italian grape varieties. Uh, is someone I knew before I started, and uh, she was one of the first people I got in contact with. But uh, unfortunately, scheduling has not allowed it until uh, this past week. So I was very, very excited to finally be able to sit down with her and uh, and get some insight into into her background, uh, particularly as a wine journalist. So uh, please stick around to the end of the episode uh, so you can find out how to get in contact with both of us to let us know what you thought. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Jane, I've finally, finally got you here on the Vincast. Welcome. Thank you for joining me today. James, thank you for having me. And I do apologize for being late. I'm what, three years late? No. <laughs> I'm, I've been on the road, not all I know, over I know. In three you years. Are, you are very busy. You're, you're, you're out in the regions, you're running wine shows. So I'm, I'm, great, I'm grateful that I was able to uh, te you know, tease you in with some De Bartoli wine so you could come and, and join me. So That was just welcome. a lovely added incentive, <laughs> by the way. Thank you. Uh, Jane, um, I typically start every episode of the podcast asking my guests if they can remember the first interaction they had with wine that made them think about it in a different way that sort of set them on the path of um, dedicating themselves to wine. I know you asked that question of everyone. <laughs> And 
I'm aware of it. And I should come and go, oh, well, James, guess what? It was, you know, it was that 61 Barolo or it wasn't it a 78 Latash. But um, I have to say, no, I, I actually can't remember one that said, that's it. That's the, the light bulb moment. And I think because... I grew up with wine. I had mm-hmm. a family who loved wine. So it was all around us as children. Uh, I mean, not in a boozy context. No, 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 no. But, but just, no, it was the same thing with me. My parents, you know, drank wine when I was young. And so it was always on the table. Yeah. Uh, you know, at family, at family dinners. Indeed. And that's what it was like for, for me growing up, which is wonderful. And some really good wines too. I guess the light bulb moment came with writing because that's what I do essentially. And as a journalist, I was writing a lot about food and a bit of wine. And then I thought, oh, yeah, okay, I can write. And I really love wine. I should combine those two together. So how did you get interested in writing? I have always been interested in writing um, since a kid. Yeah. Uh, and I went to uni to do a degree, an arts degree initially. Sure. But I always wanted to write. Now, having said that, no, I'm not talking about writing novels. No. Um, I've always been interested in journalism and I applied for a cadetship, is what, which was what so you, they were so called you, back then. So non-fiction was, was very much was journalism. Yeah, was absolutely. Very exciting. Interesting. Mm. Okay. So you, you got interested in, in that form of writing and like as far as reading it when you were younger? Yeah, reading the paper. I love interviews and sure. I love reading them and yeah. I still do. I love interviewing people and I love writing their story. Sure. I'm just the conduit for that. So when you studied journalism, did you have a particular area that you might have been interested in at that point or you just sort of thought, I'd, I'd want to do journalism and I'll see where it takes me? Yeah, exactly. I, um, when you train at a newspaper, you sort of do everything, uh, you know, all sorts of areas that you work into. I was obsessed at one stage about police writing, police reporting, wow, okay. court reporting, yeah. loved it and yeah. specialised in that for many years. But, um, you know, it's still, it's the art of the interview and it's trying to, pull out and tease out those kind of questions from people and get the answer. And I love it that often it's, you know, when you think, oh, gee, this interview is going really, really not so well. Mm. And then you're about to leave and they say that one thing and you go, gold. Yeah. It's that one moment. It's your link that brings it all together. I love that. And it happens with uh, winemakers or producers, growers. Love it. Mm. So what was your first journo gig? Uh, well, I worked at the time. I got a cadetship at the then the Sun News Pictorial. Uh-huh. So there you go. Which actually was a brilliant training ground. Yeah. Met great journos. Look, once you once you you're in somewhere, mm. people move around, and it's like this community. It's it's a bit like you know sommeliers. It's a bit like winemakers. Yeah, yeah. It's a real community. Yeah. Um. And but I chose uh, the print word. I love that. Mm-hmm. I've done a bit of radio and television, but it's far more interesting for me. To write, I just adore that. Yeah, like the research uh, element as well. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, love okay. that. Did you have some early mentors uh, in those days? Uh, look, or was it just sort of every, everything influenced you? Yeah, that's right. And obviously, they were great. You know, um, journalists at the paper, and then I went on later on to work at the Age after um, a period of time doing some other things. And there were, you know, there were great writers there, great editors. Um, so um, they're always an inspiration. Mm. And were you interested in in food and wine at, at this stage, just just purely from a you know? Yep, I was a, a, not not quite a hobby, but just a lifestyle kind of thing. Yeah, when um, when I applied for my cadetship, because you've actually got to go and do an interview as well. Yeah. they don't sort of look at oh yeah, she's been to uni, she's done this. Yeah, you, know, you do an interview. Yeah, and I was sitting there, and I remember because at the time it was the Herald and the Sun; they were two separate papers. 
And I looked around this boardroom. I was the last one. I purposely made sure I was the last person to be interviewed, cadet for the day, potential cadet. And there were all these old fogies, blokes, yeah. doing the interview. They would look really tired. And one of them I connected with, and he was the editor at the time of The Sun. And he said, look, you know, why do you, why do you want to be a journalist? And I said, oh, I want... Um, uh, oh, Eric Page's job, who at the time was a leading restaurant reviewer. And, right, okay. And I said that cheekily. I said, oh, I want to work with him and I want to write about wine. And that was it. And a couple of weeks later, they rang up and said, you've got the job. Oh, Not to be a restaurant no. reviewer. So they appreciated your moxie. Yeah, there you go. So anyway, it worked. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, so you had the opportunity to um, work across a number of different kind of desks, as it were, um, yeah. as a journo. Exactly. Um, how, how long did it take to sort of start to look at um, writing uh, as far as food and wine? Look, that did take longer because I really loved uh, just getting into the, the scene. You, you know, once you're there, it's like... And this is, you know, when people talk about you have ink in your blood, wine in your blood. Yeah. Um, I really did get excited about being in a newsroom. It's mm -hmm. a, one of the most exciting places to work. Yeah. It's like vintage every day. Yeah. And, um, but, and I just was immersed in that. And I was young, you know, I was only in my early 20s. So I was into that, still drinking great wine, but that was just what I did. You know, I loved it. When I say great wine, it wasn't that expensive. I was on a cadet's wage and it wasn't very much back then, I can tell you. Mm. Um it, that came later when there was just an opportunity. Life is about timing. And there was an opportunity when I worked at The Age. Um, I was doing some restaurant reviews for the Good Food Guide and Cheap Eats, and I edited Cheap Eats. And then a section came up and they needed a wine writer. And obviously, I, you know, it was more than a hobby, I guess, wine. I was, I was into it. It was a bit geeky in that sense. And it just fitted. Did, you, did you find yourself reading about it um, you yeah. know, extracurricularly? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, reading about it. But the best experience, if you can't actually be in the place where the wine comes from, is just actually the bottle. Sure. You know, tasting wine is the most fabulous experience. If you have a beautiful bottle. Now, we've just tasted two wines, the Marco de Bartoli wines, the Vigna Verde and the Solavento. Now, okay, even if you hadn't been to Sicily, perhaps you've never tried these grape varieties before, they immediately take you somewhere mm. and you go, what's that about? Mm. What's that flavour? I've never had anything like that. I find that thrilling. And that's why, you know, bringing words with wine together makes it so beautiful because you're trying to impart that information to people. They may not get on my journey or bandwagon, but I hope that people also think about that. That's what it's really about. So I can get a bottle of wine and be completely transported and then I'll go, okay, what's that about? And then you start investigating it a bit more, researching. Then you find out, wow, this producer's amazing. Mm. Um, look at the story behind that producer. And really, it's always the story, <laughs> no matter what. And that's, yeah. that's the whole thing. Yeah. So um, up until that point, had you, on the, on the subject of travel, had you done much travel, like whether it was for work or whether it was just sort of travel for, for your own enjoyment? 
Yes, um, certainly in my late 20s, I did a fair bit of travel. Um, obviously, initially, you know, you go to Asia a lot, so the food's great. Not really wine in terms of the heat, you know. Um, I actually grew up in Malaysia, so really? I'm just interested, yeah, used to drinking, well, not as, well, actually, I probably did have a few Kingfisher beers and uh, Tiger beers um, there. And, um, you know, so there's always that food and wine component or having, a you know, a drink with your food. Yeah. And obviously, Europe being... Um, you know, certainly Italy, France, Germany, well, all, all the European countries have that kind of food and wine culture down pat because they've been matching those wines in a particular region for, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years. I love that. And when I went to Paris, I have to say, that's where sort of the fine dining thing came in. You'd go to a beautiful restaurant Um Alain Ducasse, when he opened his first restaurant, yeah. um, I spent almost all my pay packet of about a month dining there, and wow. it was the first time I came across white truffles, yeah, which obviously come from Piemonte, but he brought them in. Sure. And this was in, I don't know, the mid-90s, and the great wine list there, and they said, oh, you should, you know, try it. They actually had a Barolo. Unfortunately, I can't remember what it was, which um, is a bit <laughs> silly, isn't it? And I just thought, oh, what is this? Mm. And that certainly was a light bulb moment, but it was the combination of the two mm. and those heady aromas of both. And it just, wow. But, you know, travel does that to you, doesn't it? You yeah. go somewhere and you go, wow, what's this about? Leads you on that journey. You get another story. So I'm just building volumes up. <laughs> so, you, so you relish that opportunity to kind of explore as far as culinary and, and, and vinologically. Um, sorry, I'm, I don't know what I'm what, what That's a great made-up word, vinologically. Maybe there is. That sounds fabulous. I'm going to use that. Do you mind? <laughs> no, no, please be my guest. Um, whilst you were traveling in Europe, it wasn't, you know, because it was the same thing with myself when I, you yep. know, in, again, my late 20s, when I spent um, a year traveling around Europe, the, my, the primary reason was to learn about wine and I wanted to experience regional cuisine as well. But I also took an opportunity to sort of yeah. pursue cultural Absolutely. Um, you know, yeah, experiences great. like you know, going to galleries, that kind of thing. Mm. And, and so, so when you traveled in Europe, did you sort of do the same thing? Sure. But so did you do this when you left King and Godfrey? Yes. Well, you worked in a great wine shop. Yes. So you had that kind of foundation there. So that sort of is a lovely spring springboard, isn't it? Mm. And I guess, look, for me, um, you know, I've, doing an arts degree, loving words, I read a lot, and there's uh, that sort of kickstarts things for you. So, yes, you would go to a region, and initially I went, I did a lot of um, trips to, to, to France, mm -hmm. and, you know, you get to look at the food of a region. Obviously, Burgundy has particular food, and funnily enough, great wine, yeah. um, a la Pinot Noir and uh, Chardonnay, and it just, things start to fall into place. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah. And you do. You visit, you know, there might be a local art gallery or the, you speak to someone who lives there and uh, they're just, I don't know, those connections that Somewhere, make sense. Yeah, a place of historical significance. Yeah, as well. yeah. indeed. Yeah. It's all uh, part of it. Culture is the right word for it. At this stage, were you doing any writing on your own, like for yourself? Like, no, not really. Not, no, not, 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 not journaling or anything like that? Uh, no. You know, this is pre-blogging, pre-everything. Yeah. Gosh, I miss those days. It was so much simpler. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you think, God. Oh, Before so Twitter and after Twitter. Yeah, that, well, it's so true. I know. It sounded like a dinosaur, don't I? Anyway, um, it was, look, you worked and you were so busy at work mm. that um, your free time was your travel time. But... 
regardless, I would always take notes. I've still got notebooks filled from times before I actually started writing about wine. I have notes in books about wine that yeah. I've had yeah. when I was have, on these trips because they're like really important things to remember. I can't remember things, and sure. so I've got to write them down or keep a take of a, a photo of the wine list with, before your mobile phone was like it is today. <laughs> and you know, you keep a diary about them. And I look back and go, oh gosh, I did taste that wine. How amazing! Yeah. So I love that. Um, and uh, occasionally I bring them out, although I've got a lot of rubbish I've got to get through now. <laughs> it's good to upload all that stuff onto your computer so you can get rid of all the paperwork. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you you started um, writing about wine. Um, what was wine writing like back in the? That's sorry, not that long in ago. Start, wasn't that long ago? <laughs> I, don't know. I, I feel I feel like um, I'm saying like the 1950s or something. No, yeah, oh, um, no, I wasn't even born then. Um, I might look it, but heavens! Oh goodness! Um, look, not wine true. writing is a funny little thing at the moment, isn't it? Back then, it's look. It, it um, I, I started on the age writing about wine. At that time, in the um, the 90s, it was a pretty healthy place, mm-hmm. or late 90s, whatever it was, um, for journalism generally. Right. Uh, certainly Fairfax is not the paper. It, You know, the Sydney Morning Herald as well um, mm. is not the paper that it is today, what it was then. And I'm not trying to be, oh, you know, bitter and twisted. It's just it, it's a different era. Yeah. And I actually like this era, and I'll talk about that in a minute, because I think wine writing was a bit... Um, uh, look, I, I did a column um, in a section called A3 that's now defunct and I did an interview with a producer normally and uh, wrote some tasting notes about that producer and it just, you tried to connect the tasting note to the story and I really enjoy that. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of wine writing can be boring. It was a bit boring back then, although there was some great, as in tasting notes, they're pretty pretty boring i think a lot of the time um well i I mean if you if you take away the fact that they're also completely subjective of course absolutely and 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 that's the criticism that's laid uh, at at tasting notes a lot of the time is that that they're also there's no connection like someone might read it and go well i don't really know what that means yeah if someone says oh i don't really know what that means then that person who's writing it isn't conveying the message very well yeah, yeah. um i have no problem with anyone being subjective in fact i would prefer someone to say oh gee jane faulkner really loves that wine can't you tell by the words and that she gave it a good score and she's score. saying and she's saying why she enjoyed it. yeah yeah and i think that's fair enough um because it's, you know, I have a, 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 um, a response to a wine always, and it might not be a positive one all the time, mm. uh, but I want to convey the message to say, look, you know, this wine is just, it, it, what, you know, there's a taste, you know, if you like how I write, great. If you don't, doesn't matter, you know, mm. plenty of others. Mm. A tasting note is just that, and we shouldn't worry about it too much. That's only a small part of wine writing. Wine writing is also about the stories behind a bottle. Yeah. Um, the producers. I'm far more interested in interviewing producers than. Uh, I mean, I love tasting wine. I have to say, and often I'll find a producer because I've tasted a wine, know nothing about it, and you go, "Wow, what's this all about?" And then off you go on your journey, and you find out, "Oh, wow, that that person's amazing." But, but the experience is so much more enriching when it's put in context. So if there's, if there's context around the, yep. the experience of just tasting the wine, mm. I think that there's so much more you connect with it, so much more, and I think that's you know the benefit of meeting with a winemaker or going to the vineyard or, or, or having it with food or having it with certain people. Yep. 
Uh, I agree. That's that's what it's all about. So so that was kind of what you were really trying. You so so I, I guess people liked seeing tasting notes. It's like that that bottle, that this vintage of this wine. It costs this much. I can go buy it there. That's great. But then to actually have have that kind of connection with your yes. sort of profile mm. of of the producer. Yeah. Well, I find that far more interesting. Sure. Um, the look the, the the other side is there's so much wine around to mm. actually build up a, uh, a database and a memory bank and a taste palette, yeah. you've got to taste a lot. And, look, sometimes it's just a tasting note because you go, oh, well, that's it. It might be a perfectly good wine, no yeah. problem. But it's like I, I'm just not following that producer up at the moment because, you know, I've got another 5,000 bottles to get through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, it depends. Um, you know, there's some fantastic wines out there, but I would perhaps choose a producer that, for example, um, I love speaking to. I don't know why he's just popped into my head. John Werdekin from Pheasants. John Werdeman, yeah. Werdeman. Former, former guest of the podcast. Yes, yes, I do know that. What an amazing guy. Yeah. And, so you know, interesting. Charming, charming man, incredible story that, you know, he's a musician, goes to Georgia, falls in love with a Georgian girl, mm. um, loves the, the, the country, wants to make wine, and yeah. he's making beautiful wine. Yeah. And, wow, what a story. Now, if the wines didn't match, like if the wines were pretty ordinary, you go, oh, great guy. Sure. Gee, the wines aren't so good. That would be problematic, wouldn't it? So you'd probably move on. But because the wines are really good, I just think that ticks every box in my But But at the same book. time, you could taste the wine and go, oh, that's quite delicious. Yeah. You know, I don't know anything else about it, but knowing the story and knowing how important he is to kind of really invigorate the whole Georgian wine industry um, and, and, you know, the fact that he's an artist as well um, just makes you go, like you sort of taste more. I think it's it's such so much more um, of an experience. You sort of feel like it's a soulful experience, you know, tasting his wines. Very much so, but that's the added bonus by investigating it, you know, exactly. deep, digging deeper. I mean, if you're going to look at that those wines, you go, okay, for the red variety, say, Saparavi, well, you know, it's not being drunk a lot in Australia, so you'd have to be interested and go, Saparavi, what's this about? Yeah. And then the story unfurls, and obviously the whites that, they, that he produced Producers, um, you know, you'd be sucked in by that. Absolutely. Just, just from a curiosity level, you hope you would then go to the next step and go, what is this about? Was there a point where you started to notice yourself getting interested in particular types of wines, like wines from a certain country or wines of a certain uh, variety, that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. Definitely Italian wines. Obviously, I have... <laughs> A great love of uh, there is there is there's a reason why I've wanted to have you on because I'm like you I am completely seduced by Italian grapes and Italian wines. Yeah, there and this is definitely from travelling because even though there were some okay Italian wines in Australia, you know, say when I started drinking properly in the 80s and 90s, yeah. They were sort of the top end wines, and they look really. Some of them weren't that interesting overall, and they were quite expensive. Mm. Um, but it was when I did travel, and you got exposed to, ah, oh, wow! It's not just Sangiovese. Mm. There are so many great varieties in Italy. It's astonishing, and it just opens up another world for you. And the other thing um, I often talk about, in particular with Italy, is the savouriness of their wines, which Australians now love. It's taken a while. They're not fruit bombs, and uh, 
I love that savoury line, the acid profile, the tannin profile. And obviously I love Nebbiolo a lot because I spend a lot of time in Piemonte, but not only Nebbiolo. You know, I love Barbera, I love Dolcetto, mm-hmm. um, Arnaeus and, uh, you know, Timorasso, one of my favourite grape varieties. Yeah. So, so special wines. So at a certain point you were sort of thought of, like you started to be thought of as the the kind of – the person to 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 go to as far as Italian wines and Italian varieties being worked with in Australia. I don't know if I'm the only person. No, I'm not think, the only, but but, um, but like, but, it, you're, I thought I, th- I think that you are yeah. still sort of front of mind in that kind of aspect. Sure. Oh well, that's nice to hear. I guess uh, the other thing is I've I've chaired the Australian Alternative Varieties Wine Show for a number of years now and judged several times beforehand when Max Allen was the chair. Mm. Um, obviously, it's not just Italian grape varieties there, but that obviously spurred um, spurred an interest as well. And look, I travel to Italy once or twice a year. I make the effort to go. You have to do that. I think it's really hard to specialise in a um, in anything if you're not immersed in the culture in the region. Seeing, talking to those producers in situ, going to the vineyards, and hearing all about it. You know, mm. you really have to um, understand why. You know, the sun shines at a particular spot at a particular particular time of day. The southwest vineyards in uh, or southeast in um, in Piemonte, you know, the hills, it just falls into place. And, you know, thing about experts, a funny word, because I will never be an expert because you're constantly learning something. And every time I go back, I something. oh, right, I get that now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's just you're just adding another layer of expertise, I guess, is the thing. And um, and meeting new producers—that's the other great thing. You're sure. constantly seeing young crews coming through. Um, now you've got Dave Fletcher, who's an Aussie winemaker, obsessed by Nebbiolo, and now he lives there. Yeah. And um, he bought the old Barbaresco train station, which is being refurbished into his winery. He also is a winemaker at Ceretto, mm-hmm. and um, you know. Knowing that is just great. So yeah. I guess connections again, but connections, story, timing. Yeah, absolutely. The Vincast is a proud supporter of Australian wine and also Australian wine communication. And it is supported in part by Wine Companion, uh, also known as Halliday Magazine. Uh, if you haven't heard of uh, James Halliday, he is an iconic Australian wine writer and educator, uh, and uh, he actually launched uh, an annual guide on Australian wines, which evolved into a regular magazine about wine now called Halliday, uh, and has a huge repository of information about Australian wine on the Wine Companion website. You can find information about wine producers, uh, particular wines, different vintages in each region, and lots and lots of wonderful articles written by some of Australia's uh, best writers. So uh, if you go to the Wine Companion website and you investigate some of their different subscription packages, please don't forget that if you'd like to subscribe, use the special code INTREPID30 to get a fantastic 30% discount on any subscription package, uh, which is a way of supporting the podcast and supporting great wine communication. Uh, and and you know another another probably well known example of an Australian winemaker in Italy would be Anna Martins, yes, another former guest of the podcast. Um, you know who's You're making famous, some amazing James. Oh, shush, is making some amazing wines on Etna. Um, and so I think there are a lot of there's a lot of interest uh, of Australians, whether they're in the industry or not, to go and travel in Italy and you know and learn about the wines. So what are some of the places that you 
really love just returning to and you would hope that everyone had the opportunity to go and visit as far particularly as far as wine in Italy you know that's an easy and a hard question at the same time because I could rattle off a number of producers yeah um, just depending on my mood I guess just and not because you know the Marco de Bartoli wines really well but because we just tried to today if you went to Sicily and you didn't go to Masala and mm. try those wines um, I it's to me I get goosebumps when I try his Masala um, his story is phenomenal that they're now making beautiful table wines is a credit to the his son Sebastiano. Uh, two, two, two sons, sons and, yeah. and a daughter as well. Okay, um, and uh, I've only met Sebastiano. Yeah, and just his story. You, I mean, I cried when I um, first heard about yeah. Marco de Bartoli and. Yeah. And what the authorities did, because when he was making masala, true masala, i.e. not fortified, and the authorities, oh, well, you know, you don't put egg and all of this crap into it like we, you know, the English want. It's not part of our law. So then they closed up his winery for five years. I find that criminal. Mm. And uh, I, you know, when I heard that story, I, I cried. I just thought, how no one deserves that and no one they didn't have a right to do that although they thought legally they did yeah anyway and subsequently in 2011 he did die but um his legacy lives on and i think stronger as a result if you're not moved by going to that place hearing that story tasting his wonderful vecchio uh wines then the masala in particular then i don't know i just you know and there are lots of stories like that yeah um you know there's one elio altare who's a barolo producer now, a lot of people today might say, oh, he uses too much new work, this and that. Well, okay, maybe it's not your style. No problem. I love Messalino as well, who use larger format, sure. um, beautiful wines. But Elio Tare, he, um, he had to lose his family, basically, as in his father, to, believe, to, to follow his ideal of how to make a wine. Now, for better or worse, you know, can you imagine being in a small town and your father no longer speaks to you because he doesn't believe you're treating, you know, his the Nebbiolo um, the way you should. Yeah. And his father, they never spoke again. Mm. Until, and I find that, again, that's heartbreaking to hear that kind of story. So does that make the wine better for me, that story? Well, maybe not. But, um, you know, I guess then that's the argument about tasting blind because you can be so overwhelmed. But, you know, wine is emotional and so I'm not... Yeah, and, and that, that kind of affection to Towards a person, a person, yeah. and their story can yeah. enrich the again enriches experience. Like yeah, someone who I consider to be my wine guru is Damian Podversic, yeah. and he he um, didn't speak with his father for I think like ten or fifteen years because he he wanted to follow a path of making quality wines, and so he wanted to get rid of vineyards and buy this old vineyard and bring it back to life because he knew that site was amazing he knew like the vines were old and he wanted to you know drop you know cut down yields make less wine but make absolutely amazing wine because he was mentored by Josko Gravener and his father said what are you doing Mm. like money is made by making more wine and he said no I can I can make better wine and and he sacrificed you know again it's a question of people suffering for their passion and, and and having this vision and sort of saying, no, I'm, I have to follow this path because yeah. I know where it's going to take me. Mm. Uh, I think, you know, that, that you, you find, find that's, I think Italy is a great place to find those kinds of stories. 
Yeah, I do, look, I don't think it's just Italy, by the way, because then you know I love I love Portuguese wines too, and yeah, um, you know what what Dirk Neerport has done uh, in terms of revolutionising table wines in Portugal is phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's another country who has uh, you know an astonishing array of um, other variety or lots of varieties. Yeah, incredible. And and their wine tradition, I think, is is quite extraordinary as well with the mm. lagars. Um, yeah. oh, it, I I was seduced by Portugal as well. I have to say. Um, so you worked for an, a number of years for the Age. Um, yes. Post the Age, what what have you sort of been working on uh, yourself? Like what have you, you've got something still coming at some point, possibly? Oh, look, it's the bane of my existence. And if anyone listens to this, oh, she's not going to talk about a website that isn't there. Uh, that is coming along. Actually, I've done a lot of work, but look, websites. They're a lot of work and they've got to look fabulous. If you don't have them looking fabulous from the minute it's up, people are going to go, oh, that looks half finished or, yeah. oh, that's not quite right. And you yeah. lose them. So I'd rather, you know, take um, longer than expected, get it looking brilliant. And it's winematters.com.au. Eventually it'll get there. I am um, and I'm nearly there. It's just got to be right. And also, even though it's starting out with an Australian base, there are articles and wine and tasting notes from wines from obviously Italy and elsewhere. And I'm also getting other people to write for it. I think that's a really important thing. I um, A lot of websites, uh, particularly in Australia, it's maybe the, the one person or just a couple. And I just find that's a bit repetitive. Um, and when I was starting the website, I realised oh, there's something not right. <laughs> I thought, it's me. There's too much of me and I couldn't stand it. And I want to have other voices. I think that's really important. In the um, same way that Jancis Robinson has people like Walter Speller. Yes. Well, you know, she is the guru. She's got a bit more money than I. Um, <laughs> but absolutely, because you've got specialists in an area. Yeah. They're on the ground. Yeah. You know, I can't be in Germany. I'm not, you know, I can't be in Italy every week. So you've got to get those people who are to say, oh, can you write me a piece on that? This sure, is sure. happening. Um, and, and, that, and that is going to happen. And I guess that is kind of the, the great thing about um, – communication now um you know because you can you can establish relationships and then um someone might be overseas i might be working vintage over in europe or in north america uh, and they might do a bit of travel and and you know them whether it's you know in person or through social media or something like that you know that they exactly. they, they can actually yeah. string a sentence together as max allen so eloquently put it um and you can say look whilst you're in germany why don't you write a piece for me and, and we'll put it up on on the website Yes. Look, the other thing is um, it might come as a surprise to some, but not everyone can write. No. It is a craft. It's a skill. You've got to work at it. Now, having said that, there might be somebody, say, who's a, uh, say a winemaker, and you think, oh, I'd love you to do, you know, you've just done this vintage. I've heard your stories. Can you write something? And then it's the job as the editor or sub-editor to sort of pull those words together to make it readable and interesting. Yeah. And this is the dilemma. And um, having been an editor, and I can tell you there's some pretty bad stuff out there. Yeah. And, um, and look, you know, you look at blogs. I mean, most of the blogs I look at, the writing is truly woeful. Yeah. And um, Just grammatically. It's not just grammatically. It's not <laughs> just, just grammatically. Yeah, but it, yeah. It look, is bad enough. Yeah, but, it yeah. Is, look. If you care about words, yes. Yeah. And I remember, look, even years ago, um, a, a food writer, and I was uh, 
editing copy and I said something like, look, you know, just, just, and it's a very, it's an awful thing to have to speak to someone and say, look, you know, this isn't looking so good. You need to tighten this up. And half the time they don't know, you know, it's not really their fault in one respect. Um, They haven't been trained. And when I told this person about, you know, how, how perhaps to better craft those words to make them flow better, um, and said, look, there's some things that are not grammatical. And he said, well, that's how I write. And I said, you need to know grammar in order to break the rules. Mm. And then, you know, but to, to sort of just ignore it. Um, and when people say to me, oh, I want to get into wine writing, I said, great, read lots of novels. Yeah. You have to read widely, not just the wine books, the great wine books, yeah. the Kermit Lynch books that are beautifully written. Uh, I mean, obviously there are some people who, you know, like Kermit who could, I, I think it's his writing. It maybe had a really good editor too. I don't know, <laughs> but um, you know they're compelling stories, beautifully written. Um, but everyone's work needs editing, and you have to practice your craft. You want to be good at wine tasting? You have to taste every day. It's practice. So- well, in the same way that winemakers can't just sort of have an interest in wine and go, I'm going to make a wine, they have to taste extensively. They a lot of to... them don't, do they? No. Well, Surprising. And, and I guess that was kind of the whole point of, of wine shows was to actually train train winemakers to kind of look uh, objective or as, as objectively as possible at wines to kind of assess the so-called quality of the wine to, you know, as, as they would say, improve the, the breed of wine. And that, you know, that's, uh, again, that's a, a really important part of the uh, Australian Alternative varieties wine show that you are the chair of um, particularly considering that these are great varieties which in some cases haven't been in Australia for very long That's they're right. not extensively produced and so it's an opportunity for um, people who are making those kind of wines to get some feedback on the the wines that they're producing and sort of saying whether it's of quality whether it's, re- whether it's representative of the variety whether it's representative of, of it being in australia um but also to look at other examples being produced in australia and and so sure yeah, I'm, I'm sure you know in the in the years that you've been chairing that the show you've seen the number of entrants um increase every year indeed and just just to step back though the wine show system in australia started out with an agricultural system yeah and it was about uh most Mostly men in white lab coats, mm. being very technical because they were all winemakers mm. um, back then. Things have started to change maybe in the last uh, 10 or so years, um, having sommeliers, wine writers on board as well, which is a great thing because, hey, <laughs> they taste widely too and they're the, they're, they represent, wow, the people who buy the wine, sure. the happy drinker. Sure, sure. Um, so it's great to get winemakers out of that technical um, mould. Now, that's not to say that's, you know... Um, it's a bit impartial, isn't it? It's a bit um, sterile to judge wine. Mm, you know, oh, yes, smells good, not faulty, move on, 80 points, 85 yeah. points yeah, or whatever. Yeah. I think that's an awful way to look at a wine. And I do have a big issue with wine shows, believe it or not, even though I chair a few of them. It is a false way to look at at wine in one respect. Yeah. Um, but it is the system that we have in terms of judging. I think judging these days is more about marketing than anything else. Mm. Um, with the alternative varieties wine show, I do still think, and you know, people might say, oh, you're biased, but I do still think that that show is about um, a community. You're looking at great varieties no one's uh, um, grown before or unfamiliar with, and that's pretty exciting. Having said that, there are some varieties that have been around for a while, and, for example, Sangiovese has been in Australia 20-plus years, 
And look, they some of the wines aren't particularly good, mm. and you need to, you know, the, the producers need to look at their cropping levels. They need to look at how they're making the wine. You need to taste wines from Italy, not because you can replicate that. No, you can't. Not not to say this is how it should be made. Definitely, but, these are Aussie examples. Yeah. But you know, maybe maybe you're extracting too much. Maybe you're using too much oak. Yeah, you have to think about it beyond. Oh, this is a quick buck. Yeah. And that certainly happened you talk, with- I mean, you mentioned marketing and I think to a certain extent that, yeah. you know, there is interest, there's, you know, there, whether it's still sort of a niche uh, part of the wine market in Australia, but there is interest and so people can Absolutely. use the fact that it's Sangiovese on the label to sell their wine, you know, because it's not Shiraz or Merlot. Yeah. Exactly. And look, look, wine is about fashion a lot of the time. Yeah. I mean, top end is a bit different and that's another um, category. I mean, I look at some of the lower price pointed wines and I just despair. You know, there's just some bog ordinary stuff out mm. there. And boy, you know, it's great in terms of Australia because we make really good clean wine. But, you know, down at that level, it's pretty boring. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I want to... T- Again, not to impose my will on anyone, say, oh, don't drink that. If you're drinking wine, good on you. Yeah, absolutely. gee, if you just, you know, how about this? There's so many other varieties out there other than Pinot Grigio or Pinot Gris that, you know, we can't even decide which name to give it um, in Australia. But um, I guess the difference is we love wine, so we we go that extra mile, don't we? Yeah, of course. We're we're obsessed by it, I guess, to an extent and uh, use that word that's been bandied about way too often passionate but it it does get you and you just you fall in love with it but you know what a lot of people out there they just want to drink yeah absolutely and I, I don't like the the kind of the assumption that people who are you know in the industry um you know who that they only drink expensive wine like that of course uh, people, I don't think people realise that it's not actually a, a, a you know a great way to make money working in the wine industry. We're broke, aren't we? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We're living from <laughs> bottle to bottle. Um, but but it's, you know they, they probably need to see that there can be really interesting wine at you know not expensive prices. And but that's where I think the producers can probably sort of say, look, you don't actually need to do all this sort of stuff. You know, you only you need to do maybe a couple of things and you can still make an inexpensive wine that, you know, is very approachable, very enjoyable for people, but actually has some interest to it. I agree. And um, when I've done, uh, I do a bit of teaching, I teach Italian wine as well, but also introduction to wine, etc. The people are fantastic. Yeah. Now, they, I, I, I start with the most obvious question. Right, tell me what you drink. And yeah. we know when you do an intro course that they're going to say Sauvignon Blanc, sure. Pinot Gris or Grigio. Grigio. And look, boy, occasionally there might be someone who puts their hand up to Riesling, depending how old they are. <laughs> now, I always bring in different wines, yeah. really good wines, different varieties. Perhaps I start on a varietal um, mix, which, look, you know, it's not a cop-out, but it just makes it easier to rein it in and then say, look, if you're excited about that wine, check out the producer, go forth. And when you put another wine in front of them, they are really good. They go, oh, gee, that's great. Sure. I've never had that before. It's delicious. It's refreshing. It's an Australian Vermentino yeah, exactly. and it's crisp and crunchy. Wow, I never knew that. And I think there's still that intimidation that comes with wine, um, which is silly. It should be so egalitarian, but boy, it ain't, is it? You know, because people, um, wine writers, sommeliers, we like to sometimes, oh, you don't drink that, do you? You know, be a bit snobby about it. That shits me no end. I think it's ridiculous. 
So if you like Sauvignon Blanc, knock yourselves out, but there's other stuff to try. And even with the Sauvignon Blanc, for example, in New Zealand, which I actually think is a terrific drink, there are just too many of them that look a bit the same. But then you get some great ones with texture and then putting like, you know, what Kevin Judd does yeah, with his wild. Yeah, wacky stuff. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Um, not the only one. And it's about sort of teasing away that, okay, you do like Sauvignon Blanc. How about exploring something else? It's just yeah. sort of giving them a bit of an opportunity. But I have more time. I spend my life on wine. These people are just going to go out for dinner and have a great drink or something like that. But I would just love that to think, just go that one step. What I find is great is is sort of finding out what what people like, what kind of wines people enjoy drinking, and then finding a way for them to understand perhaps why like they like that. Yeah. To then sort of say, oh, okay, so if I like this characteristic in these kinds of wines, and I and if I talk to a sommelier or a retailer, or if I read something written by you know a wine writer, and it, they talk about those characteristics in a different wine, then that can lead you on a different path. And so sure. th that's a way for you to discover yeah. different wines. And then maybe you see a different characteristic in that wine that you connect with as well and go, oh, I like that too. And so you, it's just sort of like building blocks, you know, you, you, yeah, exactly. to, to take them up. Yeah. I think I think the kind of the, oh, you don't drink that, it, it, it's, it comes from it's a shame that you you aren't, you're missing opportunities to explore more, but I think it's it's such a slippery slope that that it so quickly you know devolves into snobbery, yeah, of which course is a shame. It does. Yeah, and you know, let's face it, not everyone finds wine as interesting as we do. No, no of course <laughs> you not. You know, we've got to pick most, that. Most ninety-nine percent of the people, <laughs> yeah, that's they right. Just, they just drink it for a reason that they yeah. enjoy drinking it, yeah. and they're not looking for much more. No. And, that, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with that if they want to learn more. Fantastic! Absolutely, yeah. there's lots of there's lots of things they can do. They can go to wine events. They can go and visit wineries. Yeah. They can they can read. They can talk with their you know local independent retailer. You know that that's the way people can get a little bit more out of it. And I hope that's what people uh, you know will do more and more. And of course, you know, following everything that you do is is a fantastic way for people to 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 explore something that they might not have known before. Yeah, you look, you hope so. And there, there are, there are plenty of people out there. There's really good writing out there. It's about pointing them in the right direction. Of course. Um, and, and, you know, um, and just thinking, gosh, there is more to life than Sauvignon Blanc. No, I don't mean that. <laughs> I actually do like Sauvignon Blanc, but you know, look, I, I drink a lot of Chardonnay. I adore Chardonnay. So, mm. you know, when people say, oh, you love Italian wine, but you drink Chardonnay. Yeah. Hell yeah. Particularly Australian Chardonnay. It's so exciting. And, but, you know, I've followed that journey as well. And it's just all of a sudden, the, not all of a sudden, it's obviously not all of a sudden, but when people still have this image, like, and I'm thinking back when I've done some wine um, courses recently, teaching that they go, oh, no, I don't like Chardonnay. And I go, why? Well, I just don't like it. Mm. <laughs> and they can't quite articulate it. So I just say, do you think it's, um, you know, because it's too big and rich? Yes, that's it. Or, yeah. And then you give them wine and you go, oh, what's, and I pour them a wine. I may not tell them what it is. And they go, oh, I really like that. And I say, you see, this is what happens. We become biased. Sure. And we blink it. We don't know why half the time. Maybe we heard something. Maybe someone embarrassed us at a wine tasting. Maybe a wine writer, you know, said that wine is, you know, not particularly good. Or maybe a sommelier said, oh, ew, why are you ordering that? 
I don't know. Or, I, or at the same time, maybe they're told, well, that's what Chardonnay is. And they yes, go, well, I don't like right. that, yeah. well, so therefore I don't like yeah. Chardonnay. Yeah. And they're completely unaware that there's a different style of Chardonnay that they might actually connect with. That's exactly. the reason why they've gone to Sauvignon yeah. Blanc. And then they can try these, you know, very lithe, you know, very um, brisk Chardonnays, like nice and crunchy. And they go, oh, I really like that. Oh, but it's Chardonnay. Oh, okay. And maybe it serves to confuse them. A little bit more, but yeah. hopefully it makes well, them think, I need to possibly open up my horizons a little bit. Yeah, I guess one of the words that really freaks me out in wine is homogeneity. Yeah. Um, and so I think people drink Sauvignon Blanc, uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc in particular, is because they know roughly what it's going to be. Exactly. And it's And it's, you know, it's familiar and it's safe. Sure. Nothing wrong with that. Sure. But, um, you, you know, but not all Sauvignon Blanc is made like that. No. And so I think, Thank unfortunately, goodness. there are some really good producers of Sauvignon Blanc in New Zealand that suffer as a result of their New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Um, I know it sounds a bit contrary. It does, that, yeah, yeah. But it's, and then when they're trying to make things a bit different, like, you know, we mentioned grey wacky and to, to build up texture and using some older barrels and using some lees contact and really build beautiful texture on Sauvignon Blanc. People go, oh, that's not Sauvignon Blanc. But yes, it is. Yeah. You know, that try not to box everything and be open-minded. And that would be the only thing I would say to someone. Just try it. If you can't pronounce it, doesn't matter. Go for it. Up. You know, how did I learn? I learned by mistakes, by making a fool of myself, which I'm very good at. Yeah. And it just doesn't matter. And if you like something, if you taste it because someone's shown you, poured you a glass, if you like it, you will get better at enjoying other examples of it. You know, it's a journey. It's There's a story. It's it's exciting. Yeah. Drink more. Think of Good it as an stuff. opportunity. <laughs> That's right. Think of it as an opportunity. Well, this has been a wonderful opportunity <laughs> to, to have you on. And again, thank you so much for joining me uh, on the Vincast, Jane. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure that the listeners will get a lot out of uh, our, our discussion today. Thank you, James. Um, for, for people who aren't already uh, across uh, Jane Faulkner, what's the best way for them to follow you on uh, on social media, online? Um, to keep 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 in yeah, touch. Yeah. Um, well, obviously, my Twitter handle is Wine Matters, and uh, I do write for many publications here and overseas. Uh, but you know, Wine Searcher, uh, Halliday Magazine, uh, a few others. But they can also email me, Jane Faulkner at winematters.com.au if um, if you're nice. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I'm around. You know, I. Um, I on Twitter, that's probably the easiest way directly, but there you go. Well, Thank fantastic. you. Been Thank fun. You. Lots of fun. It has been wonderful. Thank you. And thank you, Vincasters, for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And if you did enjoy this week's episode of the podcast with Jane Faulkner, then please do send us some feedback on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me at, at Intrepid Wino. And you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. Why not uh, share uh, your impressions of the podcast on Facebook? Uh, you can like my Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino. Uh, and I would love for you to subscribe to the podcast on uh, iTunes or any other form of uh, podcast sharing app. Uh, if you do subscribe, you get the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. And uh, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a five-star rating and write a review, uh, which is great feedback for potential listeners and, more importantly, potential guests that you might like to hear their story. 
Uh, all that information is available at intrepidwino.com, uh, as well as lots of different writings that I've done in the past and the uh, aforementioned uh, YouTube channel and videos as well. Uh, look forward to having many more wonderful guests on the podcast. But until then, bye.